Welcome to the Disaster Buys podcast. My name is Laura, and the premise of this podcast is I'm going to tell my two friends, Chelsea and Isaiah, about a different disaster that occurred every time we have a chance to sit down and record one of these. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves, and then we'll get going. Hi there, I'm Chelsea. Uh, smooth. Hi, I'm Isaiah. <laughs> <laughs> I was not told I had to be smooth. You don't yeah. have to be smooth. Um, n- none of the three of us are suave, smooth individuals, I don't think. So we're going to do our best. Um, you guys ready to get started? Yeah. Okay. Hell so, yeah. perfect. Today, I'm going to tell you guys about the British European Airways Flight 609, or as it's more commonly known, the Munich Air Disaster. Uh, I think you both know that I really like plane crashes. Don't know why, but I do. Um, And we're going to combine that today with another one of my interests, which is English football, which is soccer in the United States. Uh, So this is the Manchester United Football Club a team that I personally don't care for. Uh, (laughs) I support Liverpool. They're a way better team. Manchester wins everything, though, so that's plenty of reason to hate them. And this incident occurred on February 6th of 1958. Uh, At the time, the team had just won a match in Belgrade, Yugoslavia. Uh, Yugoslavia no longer exists. It is... Uh, currently Serbia. Uh, I think Belgrade is still the capital, though. Uh, this flight was a uh, airspeed A uh, A557 Ambassador. This was called the Elizabethan craft class, um, and this particular plane was called the Lord Burgley, I, I believe is how that's pronounced. Uh, it was piloted by two gentlemen. Uh, a James, I believe he pronounced it Tane, but it's spelled Thane, and in the United States we pronounce our H's. Um, and the co-pilot was a gentleman called Kenneth Raymond. They were both uh, highly awarded pilots uh, that were in the Royal Air Force during World War II. I believe they were both lieutenants. So this is kind of, you know, two people that you would assume you can trust to fly a plane. You would assume. Yeah. So the team was on a layover uh, in Munich, which at the time was in West Germany, which I think you both know is the good Germany because uh, Germany was split in half after they caused their second world war and lost again. Um, but in Munich, there was, there was an airport, and this particular aircraft did not have the amount of fuel capacity to get from Yugoslavia to Manchester, which is in England. And so instead of taking a less fancy plane, they took the fancy plane. That meant they had to make a layover halfway through. Um So they stopped over in Munich, and while they were landing the plane in Germany, 
the crew had turned on a um, like a defrosting system that was in the wings. And essentially what that did was it heated the wings up so there wasn't an issue of ice on the wings during landing. Because when there's ice on the wings, it changes the... Um, it changes the amount of airflow and the way that the air moves over the wings and can cause accidents. It can prevent the plane from taking off and it can cause the plane to stall, which will make it plummet. Um, and so you have to make sure there's no ice during during these parts of, of the flight. Um, so they landed, they, st they got everything fueled up and they attempted to make take off so they could get back to Manchester that night. Uh, while they were attempting the takeoff, they got real close to getting off the ground and they noticed that the port boost pressure gauge was fluctuating wildly, so they abandoned the takeoff. Uh, the boost pressure gauge shows the amount of pressure or the density of the air that's supplied to the engine at any given time. And so if you don't know how much you're getting or if you're getting too much, that can cause an issue with your ability to fly the aircraft. Uh, they taxied back to where they were supposed to start. And 40 seconds after abandoning the takeoff, they tried a second time. But they had to abandon it because the gauge was fluctuating again. Why did they immediately try again instead of going, hey, we need to look at this problem? So they had a very short window that the Munich airport was going to allow them to take off. They had like a two minute window. And if they didn't make it in that time, they were going to have their clearance pulled. And the captain, uh, Thane, he wanted to get back to Munich that night. And if their clearance was pulled, then they would have to stay over in, in Germany for the evening, which they didn't want to do. Uh, after the second time failed, they did decide, hey, we should probably look at what's going on and figure out why this is happening. And so all of the players and the staff for the team, and there were several um, journalists that were also on the flight, they all departed the, the plane and went back into the airport. Uh, somebody from the, the maintenance of the airport came in and looked at the plane to see if everything was working. And it was determined that there was an overrich oxygen mixture in the fuel, which caused overacceleration. And apparently, this is something that is pretty common with the Elizabethan class of aircraft. And so they're like, oh, it's not a problem. We're fine. While they were doing this, it started snowing really heavily. And the team was resigned to the fact that they were going to have to stay. A lot of them were nervous about flying. They were kind of making noises about it. But it's a bunch of like 18 to 25-year-old dudes and none of them want to be the guy that's like, oh, I'm afraid to fly. And so when they were told to get back on the plane, like 15 minutes after they had gotten off, everybody got back on. Um, 
because that's how men are. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> um, they were given an eight-minute window from the time that everybody got on the plane to when the clearance was going to be pulled again. I'm not positive, and I didn't see why Munich gave them such a short window or why they gave them another window at all. But they got everybody on. They checked all the instruments. And at, uh, at, at 3.03, they began to taxi again. They had not done anything to defrost the wings because during the check of the plane, the pilots had um, inspected it and saw that there was no ice on the wings, so they determined it would be safe to take off. Uh, what they had decided to do, instead of just flooring it immediately, which is what they had previously been doing, is they were going to go up in about uh, 10, 10 kilometers an hour um, segments. So they were going to slowly get faster on the runway instead of just you know going immediately. But this meant that they were going to use more of the runway than they had previously used. And it was more of the runway than any other aircraft that day had used. And towards the end of the runway, nobody had gone to clear off the slush at the end of it. So they were going to drive through it. Uh, when they hit the speed they were supposed to hit, they started trying to take off. But before they could get off the ground, the plane experienced a sudden uh, deacceleration and the pilots lost control of the airplane. Uh, it skidded off the end of the runway and hit a house because for some reason, this family of six, I didn't get their names, but they decided that the best place to live was at the end of a runway. There are a couple airports that have stupid things at the end of the runways. Yeah, it, it was determined that it was like a legal distance from the runway, but that's still a terrible place to live. Fortunately, none of those people died, though. Um, the, I believe it was the right side of the fuselage, hit a wooden hut that was also at the end of the runway, which was used to, to hold tires and fuel, and that exploded, which I think is actually what caused all of the, the deaths in this crash. It wasn't so much a, you know, not taking off, it was hitting stuff and exploding. Uh, 20 of the 44 people on board, which is, um, there were 38 passengers and six crew, but 20 of those people, they, they died on impact. Uh, they, they were never removed from the airplane alive. Um, one of the people that did survive was the goalkeeper, uh, Harry Gregg. He was one of the few people that remained conscious, but he managed to get out of the plane and the pilot was actually trying to get him to go further away. Be like, you know, it's going to explode. You need to get out of here. But he heard some people groaning in the plane. So he went back and managed to rescue several people from the plane. Yay. But, uh, Kenneth Raymond, the co-pilot, Duncan Edwards, who was a left half, which is a midfielder. They play in the middle of the field and kind of do defense, and they also attack. And a journalist, Frank Swift, they later died at the hospital. 
Uh, Duncan Edwards survived 15 days, and they really thought he was going to pull through, but he he ended up dying in the end. Uh, He is considered the best footballer that England ever produced as well. Uh, As an additional note, Harry Gregg died this year at 87. Uh, So when there's a plane crash, people have to go investigate it to figure out what happened. In the United States, we have the NTSB. And in Germany right now, it's called the German Federal Bureau of Aircraft Accident Investigation. The the Internet did not want to tell me what it was called back in the uh, in the 50s though so just the German NTSB they showed up and they were completely unprepared it was a very very lazy investigation there were reports that the lead investigator didn't even have a pen when he showed up and he had to ask journalists who had uh, shown up to use their lights so he could investigate the scene. And it was several hours later when he started doing his investigation after um, all the fires had been put out and it was declared safe. Everybody who had lived was out and at the hospital and the bodies had been removed. And when he arrived, there was ice on the plane because it had been several hours. It was still snowing. The plane had been on fire so when snow was hitting it, it was turning to ice, and, and that kind of built up. During the investigation, they decided that that was what had caused the crash, that the pilots had not chosen to uh, de- de-ice the wings, and so the plane had not been able to take off. Additionally, it was discovered that before the third attempt at takeoff, the pilot and the co-pilot had switched seats, and the, the German NTSB decided that what that meant was the pilots didn't know who was the pilot and who was the co-pilot, and so there was not, um, so they, they weren't in control of the, the aircraft because they didn't know who was supposed to do what. Uh, Thane swore that he had looked at the plane and there was no ice on it. He had done all of his investigations, all of that, and that both he and Captain Raymond were smart enough to know who the pilot was. But a gentleman inside the airport who had been very excited about seeing the Manchester Football Club took a picture of the plane while he was sitting in the airport. And when they looked at this picture, it appeared that there was ice on the wings. And so they used that in their inquest to determine that this was what had caused the accident. The uh, airline, the, the English airline, they didn't necessarily believe that ice was the cause of the crash, but it was against policy for pilots and co-pilots to switch seats because obviously these people who are trained and are very well trained can't tell the difference between who's in charge, you know, if you're in the wrong seat. 
So James Thane did lose his job as a result of the crash. But on top of that, he was also known as the man who killed uh, the Busby Babes because this team was wildly popular at the time. One of the best teams in the world, certainly the best team England had ever had. And their manager called Matt Busby. They've actually made a documentary about him called Busby. Uh, he was very popular. And so the team was referred to as, as the Busby Babes. Uh, Thane maintained that he had not been the cause of the crash and that there had been no ice on the wings. So he started his own crusade to clear his name, essentially. His, his wife got involved. They had scientists who determined that this photograph when you looked at it, um, if you looked at it under like UV light, it showed that it was just a reflection of light off of the wing and not ice. So the, the photograph was essentially useless. And the Germans had also argued that the fact that there was less ice behind the wing or behind the, the propeller on the wings meant that the ice had been you know, blown off during the, the taxi and the attempted takeoff of this plane. So he and his wife figured out what the composition of the uh, basically the fire extinguishers were and discovered that when this material, it's basically baking soda, but when it's on a surface, it makes it harder for ice to freeze uh, because science, I guess. And um, since the propellers were where the fuel was kept and there was, there was fire, the fire extinguishers had been aimed at the propellers, which meant the space behind the propellers would not freeze as easily as other parts of the plane. But the Germans didn't care about that. Um, then while doing their own investigation, they discovered statements that had been made by people at the scene. And it was discovered that the German version of the NTSB had hidden parts of vital statements. So, a gentleman who was the first person there at the scene after the crash, he had run out there to try and help people. He had testified that when he arrived there, he was wearing rubber-soled boots, but he had been easily able to climb onto the plane, on, up onto the wings to try and help people, and that he knew there was no ice because he would not have been able to walk on the wings if there had been ice there. Uh, the British government, they opened their own investigation, which in England is called an inquest, after all of this information came out. And they came to the conclusion that there was slush on the end of the runway because other planes hadn't been there. And an amount of slush of even half an inch can cause uh, deacceleration in a plane because the wheels can't get the traction that they need 
and there was up to three inches of slush in places at the end of the runway. So when they went out to to the end of the runway, they hit the slush, and that's what caused the deacceleration that caused the loss of control of the plane. And so according to their inquest, the Munich airport was responsible for the crash and not the pilot. This was reported by, by the British government in 1968, which was 10 years after the crash. Thane had never worked again, and many people still think that it's his fault for the crash. Uh, depending on which records you're looking at, the British government says that slush on the runway was the cause, but in Germany, the official cause of the crash is still listed as ice on the wing and pilot error. Uh, Thane never ended up flying again, and he died at 53 of a heart attack in 1975. So which story do you think holds the most credibility? Because I find it weird that they're like, these two pilots, they don't know what they're doing if they're sitting in different chairs. Yeah, I, I think that it's the slush on the runway because uh, this was still fairly recently after World War II. Um, you know, 13 years, it seems like a lot, but it's really not. And the German government didn't want to be responsible for something like this. And if they weren't maintaining their runways, then... You know, that is something that they would not want everyone to know about because they're trying to get people to come back to Germany. Uh, Thane was a very, very experienced pilot. And the fact that there was somebody able to say that seconds after the crash, there was no ice on the wings, I think holds a lot more water than anything anybody else has to say. What do you guys think? I think the Germans were just lazy and didn't want to deal with it. I think I think I want to fly a little less. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to want to fly a lot less after we cover a few more plane crashes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, God, why get in the metal hubris tube anyway? <laughs> At, at some point, we're going to cover a lot more plane crashes, I think, because like you said, it's the ultimate in human hubris and something so small, you know, like slush or ice or a nut out of place can bring the metal death tube down. Um, we'll also go over some tips at some point about where you should sit on a plane in case there is a plane crash. You know, if the thing plummets from the sky, you're going to die anyway. <laughs> but most plane crashes do take place on during takeoff and landing. And you know, there are... Hold on. <laughs> some people do live. There are, you know, periodically there are some sole survivors, yeah. <laughs> I do feel we need to at some point discuss... What are the chances of your living from falling out of the sky? Oh, we absolutely will. Um, hopefully, um, you know, we're going to get better at podcasting going forward. And we'll be able to, you know, do these semi-regularly. 
and we'll kind of be able to go over stuff like that. You know, what are your chances of surviving a plane crash? What are your chances of surviving falling out of the sky or being in an explosion? Um, you probably should have done this at the top of the podcast because I don't know if anybody wants to listen <laughs> to me talk for 24 minutes. <laughs> but kind of the the premise is we're going to talk about these disasters and, you know, what happened, why it happened, how it happened, kind of, you know, what's been done to keep it from happening in the future. And for some of these, we'll definitely be able to go into what are your chances of surviving if you find yourself in a situation like this? I mean, at the very least, if there's no weirdo out there that wants to listen to you talk to about disasters for 24 minutes, well, me and Chelsea do. Yeah. Yeah. I like stories. So this, you know, hopefully this is, is fun for other people. If not, I'm going to tell you guys about it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, if not, who are you going to complain to? You guys. I mean, even if we're not recording it, you're going to tell us about it anyway, so might Absol- as well record it. Absolutely. Um, if anybody is listening or is still listening, despite the fact that my dogs are barking in the background and I keep getting emails um, that are popping up on the recording, uh, we are three idiots from Amarillo. Uh, I'm an attorney. Chelsea is the most competent IT person in all of Amarillo. And and Isaiah is, he's still in school, but right now he works at the library and might become a librarian in the future. He's changed his mind a couple of times since we've met each other. (laughs) I'm real good at that. That's okay. That's the benefit of not going to law school. You can still change your mind. Are y'all excited for the terrible art I'm making? Yes. Yes. Um, I'm nearly there. Perfect. So if there is anybody still there, um, I have opened an email account for us because I had to do that in order to get a podcast hosting service. Um, So if you are there and you want to email us or recommend a disaster it's just disasterbuys at gmail.com and perhaps we should explain what the name is so since I've talked for the last 20 almost 27 minutes one of you two can can explain the the name uh, we're just a couple of disaster buys listening to a disaster buy talk about disasters yeah we're we're all very conveniently bisexual. It isn't particularly relevant to anything. Just is. That's just yeah. That's just what it is. Um, the disasters, I feel like, is apparent. I think so. Um, that much we've already explained. Yeah, I I think the description of the podcast calls us the power throuple. Um, Lovely. <laughs> Good, perfect brand. So <laughs> we obviously are a power throuple, which is they're actually in a relationship and they let me tag along. We yes. love you, honey. We do. I love you guys too. So I'm going to stop recording and we'll see how this goes.
All right. 